Well, we are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and today's text comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you. Help us. For we are certainly in a season of anxiety in our country. It has demonstrated the anxiety that lives in our hearts. Help us to trust you more. Send forth your spirit that we might be grown by your grace today. We pray for your unction. We ask for your anointing the preacher and hearer alike. These things we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, imagine with me, if you will, one of those really big gumball machines. You know, the kind you see at restaurants. I'm not talking about the square, squatty ones. I'm talking about the big ones with the really big gumballs in it. How do you know what's inside of it? Well, of course, you can see through the plexiglass. But what if you took a, um, a can of black spray paint? And you sprayed it around so that no one could see what was inside. The only way you could find out is if you put a quarter in, spun it, and saw it go down the spiral into the bottom and see what comes out. Now, the question is, was that gumball already there? Well, of course it was. The quarter allowed you to see what was already there, but the thing was already full of gumballs. I feel like in some ways this best describes how I've handled the coronavirus season. You know, I have had anxiety in my heart. I've always struggled with anxiety. But I've had anxiety within my heart. But now it is given evidence by, it is given opportunity to be seen by the pandemic. As I have begun to see and and hear those balls roll down uh, the spiral and be pulled out and see just what color my anxiety is. How about you? The reality is that this season has been a bit of a diagnostic tool for many of us. I know it sure has for me. As things have been stripped away from us, as our lives have been interrupted, as we've had to decide, are we really trusting in God or not? It has shown me that there are some real heart problems in my own heart when it comes to trust and anxiety. How about you? How about you? 
Well, you know, it's not just us. We're not the only ones that struggle with anxiety. Jesus is addressing these words originally to a group of disciples, not just his inner group of disciples, but followers in general, those who had followed him to the side of the hill, into the hillside for what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You know, anxiety is a common sin, and it is sin. We, we should call it that. Uh, and it's something that has plagued mankind since those... Um, I want to call them jerks, (laughs) Adam and Eve, when they threw this world into rebellion against God, and now we inherit their original sin, and our our natural inclination of our hearts is not towards God, but rather away from Him. Well, what is sinful anxiety anyway? First of all, it's not godly concern. We should have godly concern over our health, over our families, over our finances, over planning. God does not call us just to live as if we're over in left field. We are to have godly concern over these things, but, but there's a shift that happens from godly concern to sinful anxiety when concern turns into something that is all-consuming. When we find ourselves fretting over something, when we find our, our minds ruled by the thing that is causing us concern. That's, I think, when it often becomes sinful. And most of the time, it deals with something that hasn't happened yet, uh, something that is in the future. I kind of like to use the phrase sinful worry when we talk about anxiety. For me, it it helps get to the core of, of what anxiety in my heart really is. Good old Webster's defines worry as mental distress or agitation resulting from concern usually for something impending or anticipated. But, but I feel like anxiety is well-defined by that phrase here by Webster's, mental distress. Because when we get consumed by anxiety, we really are in emotional and mental distress, and it's hard to get out of that rut. And I know for you and me, well, hopefully for you, but I know for me, I desire to live a life that's not run by anxiety. I, I feel like sometimes I may not be overly anxious about things, but oftentimes there's an underlying anxiety that really goes throughout my whole existence. It's a lot like, um, it's a, lot like a low-grade fever, something that affects you even when you're not completely aware of it. Would you consider yourself an anxious person, a, war, a worrier? Not a warrior, a war, warrior, that's a hard word to say. You, you know, you think that as good as we have it as Americans, mostly secure in our health and finances, food, housing, clothing, clean water, you would think that we would have fewer things to be anxious over, but all the medical experts keep saying that, you know, we are prescribing anti-anxiety meds at at such a a pace that has outstripped uh, what has been demanded in the past. We are becoming more and more of an anxious people. You would think that we certainly have it better than Jesus' original hearers. You know, they were folks who seemed to have a lot of things to worry about. So Jesus tells us and tells them not to be anxious in this text, not just once, not not twice, but three times. I guess he really does mean it. Well, Jesus begins by addressing anxiety and sinful worry over life and the basics of life. Look at verse 25a. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. You know, here Jesus addresses anxiety over our lives and the things that we need the most. 
What are those things that are absolutely necessary in life? You, you think about the ships that respond in disaster or Samaritan's Purse or the Red Cross. What are the things on their first trucks? It could be food, water, and something to protect you from exposure like a tent or clothing, rain jackets. You know, most of the listeners of Jesus' sermon here would have been day laborers. Did they take a day off from work to go hear Jesus? Perhaps this is the Sabbath, I don't know. Um, but they would have been dependent upon work every day for their sustenance. They would have been looking for that one denarius that was their pay at the end of their long day of labor. I read elsewhere a long time ago that uh, most people would have to use about two-thirds of their daily income to provide food for their family. Two-thirds. That, that means there's not a lot of wiggle room when it comes to your finances. Not a lot of room for a day off or if someone gets sick, not to mention ever a day off. And so Jesus gives them and to us uh, four reasons why we are not to be anxious in these ten verses. We find the first in verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus here makes what's called an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has taken care of the greater thing, surely that means he's going to take care of the lesser thing. You know, what, what is harder to make or to give? A human life or a chicken sandwich, right? I can handle the second one. I can't handle the first. A human life with all its complex systems or a glass of lemonade? I can do the second. I can't do the first. A human life with a brain that can somehow store memories and tissue using electricity or a woolen sweater? The second we can provide, the first we can't. Jesus is saying, look, if God has given you life, you have life because God has given it to you. If God is, is able and has given you life, then doesn't that mean he's going to take care of the lesser things? He is able to do those things, to provide sustenance and clothing for us. Has he not given us jobs to work, skills to do them, a world with soil that is fertile and good for growth, clouds which provide clean water on a regular basis? Plants which grow little puffs of white stuff. Isn't that amazing? That cotton plants, they produce this white fiber that we can use and spin into clothes. Isn't that an amazing thing? God has provided all of that. And even if we are to lose our jobs, has he not given us the church family to help in time of need? Not only has God individually provided for our needs, but he has created whole systems to care for all of humanity. But we can go much further than that, of course, right? Because not only does God provide these things, he holds our very lives in his hands. He holds our very lives in his hands. You know what if someone took you to a bridge, 100 feet over a, a deep valley or gorge filled with rocks, and they said, hey, uh, why don't you jump off? Why, why wouldn't you do that? Because you would die, right? But what if that same person first tied a bungee cord to your feet? Same bridge, same rocks below, but you are safe. Why is that? Because you're connected. Something else is in control of the situation. When we think of our lives, someone else is in charge of our situation. When we think of our lives and the anxieties that we have about them, losing our lives or the loss of a, someone else's life or getting sick or losing a loved one like a father, a child, mother, friend, 
we have to remember that there is no sense to have sinful worry because God is the one who holds our lives in his hands. I think we need a dose of that right now in our lives, in our country. That God is the one who holds our lives in his hands. Job 12.10 In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Acts 17.28 In him we live and move and have our being. Job 33.4 The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Daniel 5.23 The God in whose hand is your breath. What do these passages teach us? They teach us that we are secure in God. This doesn't mean we'll never get sick. It doesn't mean we will never face hardship or die. And it doesn't mean we'll necessarily get through COVID-19 unscathed. What it does mean is that God has numbered our days. He controls everything that happens to us. He will provide for us in those times. And at death, if we're Christians, he will not abandon us. He will welcome us home into his presence. We should not be anxious about our lives because our omnipotent, omniscient, our all-present God, he holds them in his hand. And he knows you, and he holds your individual life in his hand. You know, very often, one of the main contributors to our anxiety is the felt need to be in control. The felt need to be in control. And we are often more anxious when we are aware that we are, we are not in control. And so a lot of times what we'll do is when we recognize that that there's an area in which we can't control, we try to control the things that we think we can control in order to stay busy, in order to distract ourselves, in order to give us some sort of illusion that we really are able to do something about it. Well, God gives us another reason here. And it's uh, because he has taken care of creation, and he continues to take care of creation. Uh, We see this first with the birds. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? According to one commentator, Israel was and is a place of a great many birds. I, I didn't know that. It stands at the cross-section of migration paths of several different directions. And so it was common to see large groups of birds up in the air, perhaps even as Jesus was using this illustration, those in in the field could look up and see all the birds. And so here we have what is called an argument from the lesser to the greater. God takes care of that which is lesser. Doesn't that mean he's going to take care of that which is greater? God takes care of the birds, even though they don't have elaborate planting guides and and plans. They don't use fertilizer or a plow. They don't have barns to collect their surplus grain into. They work hard, right? And we're called to work hard, too. They work hard, but they work hard collecting what God has provided for them. Now, God's, uh, excuse me, birds are valuable to God. In fact, we can say that God is a bird person. He made them. But you and I, we are far more valuable to God than birds. We see in verses 28 and 29, if we skip down a little bit, that God's care for his creation goes beyond just birds. 
We read there, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Think about the context. They're sitting here on the side of the hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The word lily here is a non-technical word that can refer to any kind of beautiful flower, including the wildflowers on the hills around them. Even though Solomon had tons and tons of money and countless sets of expensive clothes, they pale in comparison to the natural beauty of the lily or the wildflower. Aren't we more valuable to God than just flowers which don't last very long? The grass withers and the flowers, they fade. All flesh is like grass, God says in Isaiah chapter 40. If God takes care of mere flowers, won't he take care of us? Then he moves to grass in verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you? You know, in Jesus' day, grass was pretty valuable. It wasn't just necessary for for something fun to look at or even really good like soil uh, erosion control. It was also a fuel. In Palestine, there are not many trees. And so for fuel for their ovens, they would often use bunches of grass. And as important as grass was, not only for aesthetics, not only for soil erosion, but but even to cook your bread, the, the bread that God provided, we are so, so much more valuable than the birds, the lilies, and the grass. Why is that? Well, for two reasons. One, we are made in the image of God. God did not create creation equal, okay? It really is more important that we focus on saving the lives of the unborn and the elderly and the distressed and the sojourner than the lives of the whales, okay? We should care for creation, yes, period, full stop, we should. But mankind is the most important of God's creation. Why? Because we were made... In the image of God, which doesn't mean that we look like him. It means that we were made with souls that will live forever. It means that we're morally responsible for our actions. And it means we're made for relationship with each other and with God. Therefore, God cares for us as mankind so much more than his creation. But for believers in Christ, there's a whole other reason. Such a greater reason. And that is because Christ is our Redeemer. God has lavished his love upon us. He has saved us at the incredible cost of that of his Son. And now we are not just made in the image of God. We are united to his Son. We are united to Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. If we are in Christ and we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Our sins have been nailed to the cross. He had your sins and my sins individually in mind as he paid for them upon the cross. He has shed his love for us and and the, the, the riches of his kindness towards us in Christ. We will sing of those for all of eternity, not for something we've deserved, but something that has been given to us as a gift. Would God give us the gift of his son and make us, uh, we who were a wretch, his treasure, and then only to abandon us? Of course not.
You don't go and adopt a child in order to abandon them. And this is what he has done for us in Christ. We who have trusted in Christ, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, we're given another reason verses 27 and 34 about how things how anxiety just absolutely solves nothing that's our third reason verse 27 says and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life can you ever think of a time in your life you look back upon a time in which you were consumed with anxiety and think man i'm so glad that that was how i handled that situation That really helped me out to be consumed with anxiety. Well, of course not. Anxiety accomplishes absolutely nothing. The text here can be translated two ways. It can say a cubit, translated by being anxious, could add a single cubit to his stature, right? A stature of your height. But I don't think that's what's going on because a cubit is 18 inches. that, That would be a really big deal. And Jesus is honing in on on the fact that we can't do anything even as small as adding a a small measure like an hour to the length of our lives. Think about this. If you died when you were 75 years old, you would think adding one hour to that would be, we can probably handle that, considering that one hour is 1.51 millionths of your entire lifespan. But we can't even do that. In fact, stress, which is produced by anxiety, releases cortisol in our bodies, which is detrimental to our bodies over the long term. And it affects everything from the blood sugar to our hearts to blood pressure and many other systems. Anxiety actually robs us of a longer life. Well, not only that, but... One of the reasons that anxiety doesn't solve anything is because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Look at verse 34. We read this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We're not guaranteed we're even going to be alive tomorrow. So why should we be consumed by sinful worry and fretting over something that may not even happen? And if tomorrow should ever come... I think it's a Garth Brooks song. God will meet our needs on that day just like he has met ours today. I like what William Hendrickson, commentator, says on this passage. He says, when tomorrow arrives, there will be new troubles, but also renewed strength. God has not given us strength today for tomorrow's difficulties. The fourth reason that we're told here that we should not worry, comes in verses 31 through 32, and it is simply this, that your Father knows your needs. Read there. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You know, as Christians, we have an entirely different relationship with God than the Gentiles do. And Gentiles here refers to unbelievers. I'm a Gentile in that I'm not a Jew ethnically. 
But here it's referring to unbelievers. Believers have a different relationship with God than unbelievers. And it is that God is our Father. If we have accepted Christ, if we have repented of our sins and put our faith in Jesus, if we have come to him and said, I know what I've done is against you, is sin, and I repent. I confess my sins to you. Please forgive me. Be my Lord and Savior. Then he will save you. And he will call you. Call you one of his own. And in that moment, not only are you redeemed and saved, you are also adopted as a child of God. You know, you think about how we um, relate to our young children or our grandchildren. And the the fact is that we know what they need better than they do. It turns out you really can't eat chocolate cereal for every meal and, and your tummy not get upset. It really means that you can't go to bed at 12 o'clock every day and that your life's going to be all right when you're four, five, six, and seven. We know better than our children do what they need, but how much more does our perfect Father in heaven, who is God and has created all things and sustains all things, how much better does he know what we need? There's not a need in your life that your God is not aware of. Now, he calls us to ask him for those things. If you back up in the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about prayer a good bit. He's even told us to pray for our daily bread, those things which we need daily. Now, he knows we need them, but he calls us to be dependent upon him in prayer. Why then will we be filled with anxiety when our Heavenly Father, who knows our needs so much better than we do, why would we be anxious when he knows what we need? Well, those are some good reasons not to be anxious, but, but why? Why are we so anxious? Well, Jesus gives us the diagnosis in the second half of 30. He says, O you of little faith. Now, it's interesting because this phrase isn't found anywhere else outside the Bible in Greek. We find it only on the lips of Jesus and several different times, like when the, the storm was raging and he calmed it. Or when Peter begins to sink when he was trying to walk on water. And here, O you of little faith, what's the problem with our anxiety? At its very foundation, it is a lack of trust and faith in the fatherly care of God. At its very foundation, it is a lack of trust and faith in the fatherly care of God. That he's going to leave us this time. This one's too big for him. He stopped caring for me. Doesn't he know what I'm going through? He's a bad father. It's a lack of trust in the good and fatherly care of our God. He who has saved us from guilt and the bonds of sin. He who has freed us from the power of death. He who has entered into a relationship with us at the unfathomable cost of his son. He who has made promises. He who has given us the Holy Spirit. He who has constantly provided for us and cares for us. And then out of our sinful anxiety, we wonder, well, I guess I'm on my own this time. How often do we do that, my friends? How would you feel if your children came up to you with those kind of words? If they were filled with concern that they wouldn't have anything to eat tonight, 
You're not going to give me anything to eat, Mom. You're not going to give me anything to eat, Dad. I've got to do it all on my own. Meanwhile, you've got a roast that's been in the crock pot all day long. Of course you can provide for your children. How much more will our God in heaven, our perfect Father, provide for his children? So how do we strengthen our faith? If the problem is weak faith, how do we strengthen it? How do we fight anxiety? We could spend a whole series on this. And let me say that this is something I've dealt with a lot in my life, is sinful anxiety, sinful worry. And if, if you find yourself consumed by this, come talk to me. You've got a friend in me on this. Let's talk through strategies together. But the first and fundamental way that we grow in God's grace, having our, our faith strengthened, is by pursuing the Lord through those God-ordained ways that He grows us. And we call those things the means of grace, the preached word, the sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and through prayer, all in the context of God's people. This fits within the context of verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We cannot expect to find peace in our lives if we're not pursuing the Lord. We cannot expect the blessings of God if we are not pursuing God. And yet, how often in our lives when we are consumed with anxiety, the very first thing that goes is our time with God in word and prayer. And that is the absolute worst thing we could do. As we go through trials, and one of the purposes of trials, according to James chapter uh, 1 and Romans chapter 5, is to increase our faith, to strengthen us, to give us steadfastness. When we go through trials, we often step away from those very things that God has given us to strengthen us in those times. Instead, in the midst of all those things, we're supposed to seek the Lord, His kingdom and its growth in our lives and, and the lives of those around us, and to live in a righteous manner. We receive righteousness before God by what Christ has done for us on the cross. But we're also called to live lives that follow a path of righteousness. It is a blessed way indeed when we walk in God's statutes. So let me conclude with this. One particular application point that's close to my family right now is that believers in Christ don't have to be anxious. They don't have to be anxious about anything, but especially death. When we are born again, made new by God, forgiven of our sins, accepted as righteous in the eyes of God because of what Christ has done for us, we receive eternal life that begins at conversion and continues through all eternity. Therefore, Christians need not worry over death. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ has taken all of the penalty for our sins. There's no penalty left for us. There's no wrath of God left for us. We have been accepted by God. He is our Father. And so we can know that upon our death, at that very moment, we will be ushered into the kingdom of God will be ushered into the presence of our Savior. Have you reached the point in your life where you can say you're no longer worried about what will happen after you die? That is an assurance that every believer in Christ can have. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Ask Him for forgiveness. Entrust your life, your very soul to Him. 
That way you can join us as we say together, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. So Lord Christ, we do pray that you would come and that you would come quickly. Until then, Lord, rule in our hearts. May your kingdom grow in our hearts and in our lives. That we might trust you more and be anxious less. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.